Hello and welcome to, well not the history of the Germans today, but a special treat. Episode 1 of the great Thugs and Miracles podcast by Benjamin Bernier. Benjamin is a fantastic storyteller who brings you the history of France from the fall of the Roman Empire to the fall of the guillotine. He's just completed the Merovingian Kings, so you'd still be early if you get in now. And with him, you get a view on German history from the opposite shore of the Rhine. I'm about halfway through his roughly 50 episodes and I must say I'm totally gripped. I already had to share my first listener with him since my 18-year-old daughter has just signed up to Benjamin's podcast. Maybe introducing you guys to Thugs and Miracles is not a great idea after all. Thugs and Miracles is available pretty much everywhere you get this podcast feed from, as well as on Benjamin's website, thugsandmiracles.com. So, without further ado, here is Benjamin Bernier. Let us set out the beginnings of the kings of the Franks, and their origin, and also the origins of the people and its deeds. There is in Asia, the city of the Trojans in the region called Ilium. This is where Aeneas reigned. The city of Troy was burning. For years, the inhabitants of that once great city had survived the greatest siege ever known to man. The Greeks, a mendacious tribe from the west, had established themselves upon the shores of mighty Troy in an effort, nominally, to win back the wife of Menelaus, a beauty named Helen who ran from him in the night to find comfort in the arms of the Trojan prince Paris. Together, with all of their gods, the Greeks had crashed into Troy's walls for a decade. When they finally admitted defeat, they went back to their ships and sailed for home, leaving only a large, wooden horse as a gift to the god Poseidon for their safe return. The Trojans, excited their foes had finally left their lands, stole the giant horse and brought it into their city. If they were lucky, their act of pulling the gift away from the sea would inspire Poseidon to punish the Greeks along their journey for failing to leave him tribute. Unfortunately for the Trojans, the horse was a trick. It was filled with Greek commandos who, in the middle of the night, stole out from the wooden creation. They killed the guards, opened the gates, and left the proud and beautiful city of Troy exposed to the Greek invaders to defile and destroy. Proud Priam, king of the Trojans, could do nothing more than watch his city burn and listen to the laments of his people being slaughtered below him. His sons, however, were none too interested in dying that night. Realizing the city was lost, they quickly assembled a group of worthy nobles together and enacted a plan that had been devised by Hector, the greatest of the Trojan princes, prior to his death at the sword of Achilles. Under the city were a series of tunnels. These tunnels led to safety in a path along a river. The river led inland. It was days before the Greeks would find the tunnels and longer still before they would put together a hunting party to try and find the escaped nobles of Troy. By then, they would be too far gone to recapture. As this group wandered, they chose on multiple occasions to split their forces, each of these groups populating new lands. The first group, led by Prince Aeneas, slid over the largest mountain range any of them had ever seen, then progressed towards the sea in a fertile region set among seven hills. They called themselves Romans after the inhabitants of that land. A second group, led by Prince Friga, did much the same and found themselves in Macedonia, lending their regal and immortal blood to that race. Finally, a third group, led by Prince Francio, continued to wander further afield. They passed many areas and talked to many groups, 
but Francia refused to rest until he found the perfect spot for his people to flourish. This great king, espousing the desire to build a great empire, came eventually to the banks of the Rhine. Knowing this to be a proper spot from which to begin his people's ascent in the world, he laid down roots. From his own name, his people took theirs. Thus were the Franks formed, inheritors of the great city of Troy, a people never captured and never enslaved, who shared their royal blood with the greatest empires in history. They were destined to lead and destined to conquer. They had found their land by divine providence, and they would now use their divine mandate to rule their people and conquer the tribes that lay beyond their borders. This is Thugs and Miracles. Episode 1. After the Fall, the Beginning. Alright, welcome to Thugs and Miracles. I'm Benjamin Bernier, and to be honest, this is actually the second time I've recorded episode 1. I'm talking to you now from 2021, but the show launched in 2019. As we've grown, the most listened to show on TNM, as one might imagine, has been episode 1, and as such, we've decided to re-record it so as to put the show's best foot forward from the start. That said, the original show wasn't bad, and most of the script for today's show is exactly as it was when we started. Mainly, we've gotten better over time with our equipment and our setup and our software, and anyway, if episode 2 sounds a little different to you, this is probably why. Another thing that's different from before is that I didn't start with a story in episode 1 in the way that I start every other subsequent episode, and that seemed kind of like an oversight on our part. You see, our format is to begin with a story out of French history, and then to present it in all of its glory, and sometimes all of its comedy and then take a critical look at it from the point of view of what we know of the history today. Most of the older histories in particular were designed to establish a myth around the monarchy or to denigrate rivals of certain authors and kings while also praising their chosen monarch. Hopefully, we cut through some of this, and more importantly, we hope we entertain you as you're exposed to stories that you may have never heard of before. To be honest, before the start of this podcast, we had never heard of most of them. And so it is with even our opening story today, which, appropriately enough, is one of the founding myths of France that was used for years and years. And yes, it's only one of the founding myths. You see, the monarchy, beginning with a group known as the Merovingians, and who we'll discuss in great detail coming up, needed to establish a reason for why they were the rightful rulers of France. And you don't get a much better precedent than by saying your ancestors were the rulers of Troy, honorable people who fought Greek gods and who only lost their battle because of Greek deceit. The story connects a line to the descent of the Romans and even Alexander the Great. It tells the story of an unconquered people who were never enslaved, a group that made its way to France through perseverance and foresight. And it makes the Franks out to be a group destined to rule, not just some upstart Germanic tribe. This French origin story, in a nutshell, is that of a group of immigrants that made good. 
something that's all the more ironic considering some of the problems with immigration and nationalism facing France and many other countries to this day. Okay, before I go too much further though, let me take a moment to tell you who I am. As I said a few moments ago, I'm Benjamin Bernier, an American with French heritage and a lot of time on my hands. Anyway, back in 2016, my wife and I had the opportunity to visit France, and as a part of that trip, we, like millions of others, made our way over to the Palace of Versailles, just outside of Paris. There we saw the huge and immaculate gardens and the main palace, which was ornate to the point of being gaudy. We strolled through the Petit Trianon and saw where Marie Antoinette took refuge from a reality that would come crashing down on her head in just a couple of years. We also walked through the Hall of Mirrors and stood in the same room where, 100 years earlier, world leaders had signed a treaty that ended the First World War while simultaneously assuring that there would be a second. Finally, we ended up in the Galerie des Batailles, or the Gallery of Battles, a massive hall that's filled with over 100 busts and painting depicting the military glories of France up through the year 1805. At the end of this hall, prominent in its place at the head of all the other works of art, is a massive painting. It shows a moment of pitch fighting in the center of a major battle, with the dead, wounded, and dying sprawled all around on the ground. And near the center of the picture, a soldier who looks to be falling backwards with a freshly struck arrow lodged in his chest, right into the path of a black warhorse. Above all else, this is the part of the painting that catches the eye. Not the dying soldier, but the horse and its rider. The horse is staring straight into the enemy lines and looks as if nothing in the world short of death will stop it from joining the fight. And atop this horse sits an exposed man with long hair, his arms held wide apart with his left hand extended toward the sky. He's practically inviting an arrow or a lance to hit his torso, something that would almost certainly kill him as he has on no armor. He's riding into battle with little more than the axe in his hand and the sword on his side for protection. And rather than looking at the battle raging around him, he's looking to the sky. Even without knowing his story at this time, it was clear to me that he was invoking God to join his side in the fight. This man, I was later to understand, was Clovis, one of the first individuals to truly be able to take on the mantle of King of the Franks. His painting, standing at the head of the gallery, depicts the beginnings of modern-day France, a history that began all the way back in the 5th century and predates even the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 CE. As I stood there on that day in 2016, however, I, like Jon Snow, knew nothing about Clovis or the history surrounding the people with whom I share an ancestry. Well, much reading and researching has elapsed since that time, and this podcast is an outgrowth of what I've learned. Quite honestly, much of it has been shocking to me, a history that I can't even believe is not more widely known. In my opinion, it puts most works of fiction to shame, and so that's what we're trying to do here at TNM. Explore the history of France and its monarchs, from the fall of the Western Roman Empire to the fall of the guillotine. You see, the story of the French monarchy is about so much more than the beehive hairdos and powdered faces of the French monarchs that most of us in the U.S. have become accustomed to seeing in movies and TV shows. Don't misunderstand me, that is a part of it, and we will eventually get there. But it's only the tip of the iceberg. What intrigues me, and what we'll be diving into here, is the history of long-haired, mystical kings, 
of queens making power plays in a male-dominated society, in stories of patricide, fratricide, and every other type of side possible. It's the history of court members making power grabs and overthrowing regimes, of deals made to unite religions and compel alliances, and of miracles, saints, and relics appearing through the years to change the course of events and make the impossible possible. Yale professor Paul Friedman, whose medieval history courses are free and available online, may have said it best when he said of these times, quote, We're into what certainly seems like a combination of thugs and miracles. All right, so where are we going to start? Well, for one, we're not going to start in ancient Troy. While the story is fun and lends quite a bit to the conversation about how later kings wanted the monarchy to be perceived, it doesn't do very much for us as far as understanding the true foundation of the Franks. For this, I offer to start off our look at the French monarchy in the 5th century CE. What made me choose this specific time as the start point, you may ask? Well, there's three reasons in particular. First, the area of modern-day France had been more or less under Roman control for centuries and had been known as Gaul. The Western Roman Empire fell in 476 CE when a Germanic barbarian named Odoacer led the overthrow of Romulus, the last of the Roman emperors in the West, and crowned himself the king of Italy. Understanding the Frankish ties to Rome, both the Eastern and Western Roman empires, and the barbarian tribes in what is today Spain and Italy, in the rest of Europe is vital to our discussion. And this leads us directly to reason number two. The group would ultimately rise to power in France was, appropriately, the Franks. But in 476, the Franks were only one of many other Germanic tribes looking to expand their powers. Other tribes throughout Europe included, but were by no means limited to, the Visigoths, the Burgundians, the Alemanni, the Thuringians, the Frisians, the Saxons, the Danes, the Angles, and the Jutes, and the Ostrogoths. Even the Franks were not a united group. They were split into multiple factions that included, among others, the Salian Franks and the Rapirian Franks. Of these, the Salian Franks would ultimately take the lead, unify the tribes, and begin to amass territory. But as of 476, these groups held a relatively small chunk of the continental pie, with their borders essentially limited to the areas of modern-day northern Germany, the Netherlands, and Belgium. Long story short, the Franks had not yet become the capital F, Franks. So, all of that takes us to point three. The person who ultimately took the Franks from being a small northern tribe to being a western European powerhouse was that guy I mentioned earlier the one on top of the horse imploring God for help, Clovis. Clovis didn't begin his rise to power until 481, and it wasn't until he was on the scene that things really started moving and shaking for the Franks. I mean, yeah, there were earlier people who took the title of king, and we'll talk about two of them in particular in subsequent episodes, but for all intents and purposes, Clovis was the first capital K king of the capital F Franks. And if you need any further proof of that, just remember, it's his portrait that's the first one hanging in France's gallery of battles. He kicks off France's first royal dynasty, the Merovingians, the dynasty which took their name from Clovis's grandfather, Merovic. Alright, before I go any further, let me recap. It's 476 CE, the Western Roman Empire has just fallen, and the area that encompasses modern-day France is divided between multiple tribes and subtribes. 
And this leads to two questions. Who exactly were these tribes, many of whom, such as the Angles, Saxons, Goths, and Vandals, have names that are still known today? And why, exactly, was the loss of Roman hegemony such a distinct event? As to the first question, who were the Germanic tribes? Well, long story short, these tribes had been formed over the course of thousands of years and were markedly distinct. They get lumped together under the heading of Germanic, mainly because that's basically how the Romans viewed anyone living in the province of Germania. Either you were a Roman or a German, and if you were a German, well, the Romans didn't seem to much care which flavor of German you associated yourself with. Anyway, according to archaeological evidence, these groups were most likely present on the European plains of Denmark and southern Scandinavia as far back as the Neolithic Age. That's when humans first began controlling their environment through the use of agriculture and the domestication of animals. They grew over the course of millennia, and with growth, they took to migration in an effort to find new lands to harvest and grow. It's pretty much the story of human existence in a microcosm. As groups migrated, they eventually ran into other groups and, well, people being people, conflict began. This conflict hardened the tribes and they placed a premium on developing their people as warriors. In a hard world, this served as a form of barbarian Darwinism. In the first century BCE, as these militaristic tribes moved south into what is modern-day southwestern Germany, they made contact with the great military power of the day the Romans, as they were looking to expand their territory north into the region of Gaul. Both Caesar and Tacitus wrote about the Germans, with Tacitus describing their warlike behavior in this way. Quote, When they go into battle, it is a disgrace for the chief to be surpassed in valor, a disgrace for his followers not to equal the valor of the chief. And it is an infamy and a reproach for life to have survived the chief and returned from the field. To defend to protect him, to ascribe one's own brave deeds to his renown, is the height of loyalty. The chief fights for victory. His vassals fight for their chief. If their native state sinks into the sloth of prolonged peace and repose, many of its noble youths voluntarily seek those tribes which are waging some war, both because inaction is odious to their race, and because they win renown more readily in the midst of peril, and cannot maintain a numerous following, except by violence and war. Indeed, men look to the liberality of their chief for their warhorse and their blood-stained and victorious lance. Feasts and entertainments, which, though inelegant, are plentifully furnished, are their only pay. The means of this bounty come from war and rapine. Nor are they as easily persuaded to plow the earth and to wait for the year's produce as to challenge an enemy and earn the honor of wounds. Nay, they actually think it tame and stupid to acquire by the sweat of toil what they might win by their blood. End quote. All right, now we should take Tacitus's description of the Germans with a huge grain of salt, as it's unlikely that the Roman actually saw firsthand what he was writing about. His stories were colored by nearly two centuries of Roman interactions and warfare in Gaul, as well as those of travelers to the region. It's more than a little possible that Tacitus was cherry-picking his facts as he wrote to spice up his descriptions. Another issue with the writings of Tacitus is that he penned his accounts of the Germanic tribes in the mid-first century. So, while his writing is interesting and colorful, it likely doesn't accurately represent the state of play in Gaul three to four centuries later. 
What Tacitus does give us with his writing is an insight into how Romans viewed the Germans and also lends credence to the Roman point of view that the tribes on the border should be taken seriously as a threat. Patrick Wyman summed it up best in his outstanding Fall of Rome podcast. From the Roman point of view, which is the only point of view we have to work with since the Germanic tribes did not commit their history to writing, the barbarians, quote, existed outside of history, an eternal, unchanging force living outside the borders and opposed in every meaningful way to civilization itself, as represented by the Greeks and the Romans. End quote. However, this xenophobic point of view put forth by the Romans of the barbarians as some sort of unstoppable horde was likely due as much to Roman politics as it was to any actual threat prior to 376 CE. In his book, Barbarian Migrations in the Roman West, Guy Halsell notes the following, quote, We cannot escape the conclusion that in the 4th century the struggle was still a hopelessly unequal one. The barbarians north of the Rhine-Danube line and Hadrian's Wall and across the Irish Sea could hardly, even in concerted action, have contemplated the conquest of the empire. Perhaps for that reason, before 376, and for a long time afterwards, none ever tried it. The quote-unquote barbarian threat was as much a Roman creation as a barbarian reality. End quote. So, what happened in 376? Well, long story short, Gauls along the Danube began to pile up and place pressure on the border. These Gauls were refugees from fighting inside of their own territory, running from a Central Asian steppe group known as the Huns. The Huns, given the nickname the Scourge of God, were cavalry soldiers who were able to make extremely fast charges into areas, often routing armies before they had even had a chance to stand in resistance. The Huns were so effective that by 376, given the choice between facing them or begging the Romans to let them across the Danube, the Gauls had chosen the Romans. And the Romans mishandled the situation about as badly as they could have. After two years of mismanagement and outright incompetence, the Gauls rebelled. This culminated in 378 when the Roman Emperor Valens, seeing a chance for a great military triumph with which to endow himself with glory, rushed into battle against the Gauls in the town of Adrianople, with rushed being the key word. The Gauls were able to counter the Romans' attack, which emanated from a strung-out battle column, and then flanked the Romans with their cavalry. The line fell in on itself, the eastern field army was slaughtered, and 10 to 20,000 quality troops were lost in one shot. The emperor himself was killed, with a popular story claiming that Gauls had burned a farmhouse into which Valens had fled. Fighting continued for several more years after this incident, but in 382, the Gauls signed a treaty with the Romans that allowed them to move into Roman territory as a semi-autonomous group, the first such group that was actually allowed to live on imperial soil. From this point forward, Roman power projection tends to get more and more confined. The empire enlisted entire tribes to fight against other groups and began to focus more and more on the defense of their southern holdings. By the early 5th century, Rome had lost control of Britain entirely and had ceded much of northern Gaul politically and economically. The Franks, the Burgundians, the Alemanni, the Alans all followed the Gauls' lead and moved into areas that had once been off-limits to them as holdings of the empire. Alright, now that we have an idea of who the Germanic tribes in Gaul were, how the Romans had generally viewed them, and how they arrived into the region, we move on to the second question which was asking 
why the fall of the Roman Empire was such a big event for the region of Gaul and the people living there. Eventually, no matter whether you subscribe to the point of view of Rome falling mainly from outside pressures placed on the empire, or collapse from within caused by years of neglect, poor leadership, and general decay, the Western Roman Empire did fall. But why was this such a big deal? Well, first off, as previously noted, the loss of the Roman Empire was a slow burn. The decline took place over centuries, and so it wasn't like people just woke up one day in 476, you know, a la 28 days later, just to realize that all of the Romans were gone. Instead, what happened took place over such a gradual length of time that it's entirely possible that if you had been living amongst the Franks in 476 as Odoacer deposed the last Roman emperor and took the mantle of King of Italy upon himself, you could have lived that entire year and never once have felt so much as a bump, historically speaking. But for a century before this, there would have been a gradual withdrawal of the Romans from your area and from your day-to-day life as the Western Empire contracted and returned back to its Italian borders. You see, no matter how backward the Roman histories would like to portray the barbarians pressing on Rome's borders, these groups were actually relatively tied into the empire. Again, according to Patrick Wyman, in the geographic estuary that existed along the border, quote, The Romans and barbarians were friends, trading partners, political allies, and tooth-and-claw enemies, all at the same time. End quote. Romans drew recruits for their legions out of the tribes and brought Roman goods back to the north. For the Franks in particular, they had worked alongside and within the empire, fighting against other Germanic tribes, not so much for the aggrandizement of the Franks as for the greater good of the Roman Empire. They actually fought against Attila and the Huns when they rampaged into Gaul. As we'll see later, it's entirely possible that Merovec, the man from whom the Merovingian dynasty would eventually take their name, was present at these battles and fought on the side of the empire. In fact, while writing about the Franks around 570 CE, the Byzantine historian Agathias described the group in this way, quote, The Franks are not nomads, as some of the barbarians certainly are, but actually follow a political system that is for the most part Roman, in the same laws as us. In other respects too, contracts, marriage, and religion, they followed the same practice. End quote. Basically, the Franks had been Romanized, and once the Roman Empire left, they did their best to hang on to a culture that they knew worked. Of course, things changed and morphed over the course of time, but even nearly 100 years after the seminal event marking the end of the Western Roman Empire, representatives from the Byzantines, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire, were still able to show up and see many of their rules, traditions, and administrative actions still in use. One thing that did go, and that the Franks couldn't simply copy or emulate, was the economy. Eventually, no matter how gradually it happened, the Romans were unable to continue power projection into northern Gaul and left the area. When this happened, they not only left those who had been allied with them to fend for themselves, but they also took a pretty big source of economic wealth and activity with them. This left a vacuum that was going to be filled one way or another, and in this period of history, when might made right and, as Thomas Hobbes would put it, the life of man was, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The vacuum was going to be filled by those with the most military prowess. Military strength equaled the ability to expand and encroach on new lands, to raid and to gather plunder, in a way to make up for the fact that trade was no longer a very lucrative option. Enter the growing strength of the Franks. The group came out of the decline, custom-built, 
so to speak, for the new world they were about to inhabit. Coming of age in that strange geopolitical estuary in the north, they were able to keep enough of what was Roman in terms of institutions and traditions and marry it with the military strength needed to overcome what they had lost economically to become one of the strongest groups in Gaul. Alright, besides military and other tribes, there's one final thing we must discuss to fully illustrate the setting of the time we're speaking about, and that's religion. Because, after all, the show's name is Thugs and Miracles. When the Franks were about to make their ascent, they were still pagan, but had had many inroads made into their culture through both the Arians and the Catholics. Well, not much is known about the pagan religion that they had practiced up to this point, but they were certainly not entirely devoted to Christianity of any branch as of yet in 476. However, Christianity had been spreading in Gaul for several hundred years at this point, and the church was gaining more and more strength. When the Roman governors left Gaul along with the military, they left a power vacuum, and the people who stepped into this vacuum were the bishops. They had the trust and faith of the people, the support of the church, and as good a tie as anyone to the traditions and culture of Rome. As historian Yitzhak Ken wrote, this, quote, could have also been aimed at and encouraged by the church, but it would never have been successful unless people had been ready to accept the authority of the bishop and it seems that only a basically Christian society would have agreed to do so. End quote. The last part of that quote is particularly interesting to me. The part about a, quote, basically Christian society. Notice he didn't say a Catholic society. At this point, Christianity was still trying to figure out itself as a religion. It had gone from being state-persecuted to being state-sponsored within the Roman Empire relatively quickly, and it was only 164 years before the fall of the empire that Constantine converted to the faith. 164 years is just not a lot of time, especially back in a time when transportation and communication took orders of magnitude longer than they do today. Additionally, there were different interpretations of Christianity going around, as I had mentioned. In 325, Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea in order to clarify a centralized ecumenical position, but this was only after the concept of Arianism had already taken hold in many different areas. The difference between the Arians and the Church under Constantine was that the Arians stressed that God is unique and self-existent. He had created Jesus, and therefore Jesus was not self-existent, and was not a part of God himself, and was not co-eternal. The Roman Church said that God Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were all one and the same. This may sound like a fairly minor point to us today, but at the time, it was a really big deal. Constantine exiled Arius, the head of the Arians, from the empire, and the foundational theology of Arianism was denounced as heresy to the Roman church. However, the cat was already out of the bag at that point, and Arians were spreading their version of Christianity in Gaul at the same time as the Roman church. This led to the establishment of religious fault lines that people were quick to defend and exploit. As an example of this, The History of the Franks, a book we'll be looking at heavily and written by Gregory of Tours, clarifies his position from the outset with zero ambiguity. Quote, As I am about to describe the struggles of kings with the heathen enemy, of martyrs with pagans, of churches with heretics, I desire first of all to declare my faith so that my reader may have no doubt that I Catholic. End quote. As if that wasn't enough, he goes on to stir the pot by saying, quote, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord God, born of the Father, not created, 
that he has always been with the Father, not only since time began, but before all time. For the Father could not have been so named unless he had a son, and there could be no son without a father. But as for those who say, there was a time when he was not, I reject them with curses and call men to witness that they are separated from the church. End quote. Yeah, that's just page one of History of the Franks. So, that was the state of religion in 476. Christianity was widespread throughout Gaul, but there were still pockets of tribes that were as of yet unconverted, mainly in the north of the region. Of those who had converted, a schism had already formed between the Catholics who believed that Jesus the Son was a co-equal of God the Father, and the Arians, who believed that Jesus was created by God, and therefore not as divine as God himself. In 476, this schism was serious, but not out of control. However, the waters were being stirred, oftentimes by the holy men representing either side. At one point, the Catholic, as we now know, Gregory of Tours, even received a message from a member of the Visigoths, an Arian named Aglian, essentially telling Gregory to calm down. Aglian said, quote, You must not blaspheme against a faith which you yourself do not accept. You notice that we who do not believe the things which you believe, nevertheless do not blaspheme against them. It is no crime for one set of people to believe in one doctrine and another set of people to believe in another. Indeed, it is a proverbial saying with us that no harm is done when a man whose affairs take him past the altars of the Gentiles and the Church of God pays respect to both. End quote. Well, this level of thoughtfulness and respect was to become a hallmark of the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah, right. Just kidding. Just as what happened between so many different sects and so many different religions over the course of history, the stage was set for a brutal showdown and a conquest of different groups using the religious argument as a pretext for the coming violence. And such was the world into which the first kings and queens of France walked into. They weren't Trojans trudging across the continent in an effort to form a new land and empire. They were inheritors of the crumbling, and sometimes still living, remnants of the Western Roman Empire. When combined with the ascendancy of the Catholic Church, this laid the groundwork for the political and economic situation in the area that had been Gaul, that was about to become Francia, and would eventually become what we know it as today, France. The competition for power between multiple competing tribes, living in a relatively confined area, ensured that blood would be spilt, and a winner, if such a term is even appropriate in such a brutal environment, would be the one who could harness all of these elements together. This competition was only going to be won by someone who was strong enough to impose his will, a thug. But no thug was strong enough to do it all alone. He was going to need the help of the church and their saints and their relics. This thug was going to need the help of a few miracles. Alright, thank you for joining me on this inaugural episode of Thugs and Miracles. I look forward to you joining us for many more as we follow this thread over the course of 1,500 years. In the next episode, we'll be looking at Merovic, the man who gave his name to the first dynasty of French kings. And, as you'll see, it doesn't take too long for things to get interesting, what with Merovic offering us yet another origin myth, wherein he was purportedly conceived by a sea god and then fought against Attila in what was one of the few defeats inflicted on the great Hun, all before giving up his crown to his son, Childeric. The only problem with all of this 
Merovec maybe never existed at all and is possibly only a part of history because his aquatic formation story was catnip for a population that was just leaving paganism behind and the medieval historians who wanted to imbue their leaders with miraculous properties. We'll explore this, the Battle of the Catalonian Plains, quite possibly one of the coolest battles you've never heard of, and much more in our next episode. Alright, the music used for the show comes from Josh Woodward and includes his songs Bully and Lafayette. For a free download of these songs or hundreds of other great tracks, check out his site at joshwoodward.com. Notes on this episode, a list of sources, an updated monarchy slash family tree, and also a list of other great history podcasts are all available online at thugsandmiracles.com. Be sure to sign up for our free email list so we can keep you up to date with all things TNM and announcements on new shows. Speaking of email, you can write to us at thugsandmiracles at gmail.com. You can hit us on Twitter at thugsandmiracle with no S on the end. Or you can leave a comment on Facebook and Instagram at thugsandmiracles. Also be sure to check out the time travel talks hashtag and account on Twitter, as well as historypods.com and their associated Twitter handle, at Pods of History. And if you have the chance, we'd like to ask you to please take a moment and head over to your podcast player of choice to leave TNM a rating. We appreciate your feedback, and we appreciate you. Okay, once again, my name is Benjamin Bernier, and I look forward to seeing you again for episode two as we continue to explore Thugs and Miracles. hope you enjoyed that and you will subscribe to benjamin's podcast i already have and i will be back on september 9th when we continue our slow climb up towards canossa see you next week <laughs>